Hey everybody, my name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. Thank you for tuning into my show. If you love this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes. Share it with a friend. It takes one minute, and it really helps me out. Just recently, I was on my way back from Mexico. Did a little surf trip down there. Got some waves, had some fun. And I was driving up... Um, through San Juan Capistrano in Southern California. And a friend of mine said, you need to interview Evan Marks. You need to sit down with this guy and chat with him. Evan is the founder and the director of the Ecology Center. The Ecology Center focuses on creative solutions for a thriving planet. What does that mean, you might ask? That is so obtuse. What is a thriving planet? Well, this is basically what the Ecology Center is. It is a place where they teach you how to make, grow, and build really useful shit. Everything from a pragmatic tool like uh, installing a rain barrel to growing your first garden. They do workshops. They do events. This place is beautiful. I was, I was so impressed with Evan um, and what he's built here. Super articulate guy. We got into a lot. We got into the future of food. We got into the future of Southern California. Um, and man, just super articulate and inspiring guy. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Evan Marks. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in Northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. It's important for more surfers to become farmers, mm -hmm. especially in places like Hawaii, where on the North Shore, for example, if you are a kid who grows up on the North Shore of Oahu and you aren't going to be a pro surfer, mm -hmm. it's very hard to stay on right. the North Shore. Right. But there is a movement over there to um, bring more food locally and start more small organic farms, right. which I think is a really cool opportunity for young surfers in Hawaii. Uh, as an example, to sure. transition into um, ultimately learning more skills that can help more than uh, just being good at getting barreled. Well, I, I read an interesting article recently, it might have been Surfer Magazine, talking about the reality that surfers actually aren't engaged in the environment, they're engaged in recreation. And what does that transition look like where surfers actually become aware of the space that they live within? Right. You know, which is that they actually can be passionate about shredding and the substance that's, that they're shredding on, which is the ocean. Right. And that's, I guess, actually kind of like a big growth opportunity. You said surfers become farmers. It would be great if surfers became environmentalists. By default, they we kind of get surfers often consider themselves as in that category, but they're not doing anything meaningful in that category. Right. In my opinion. And, and not enough. I think that it's this kind of superficial uh, environmentalism in a lot of ways. Right. Right. Where it's like n no one's real. I mean, there are people doing it. Um, a lot of great surfers, one of yeah. Them. Yeah. Um, I, so my theory around this is that 
it's because when you're surfing, you don't actually see the bottom of the ocean. Because I have friends who are free divers and spear fishermen, and they're way more engaged than surfers in terms of environmental issues, understanding what fish are going away, when an algal bloom is happening, what pollution is happening, because they're diving down and they're actually seeing underwater. But when you're surfing, you, you're not actually underwater. Wow, that's cool. I mean, it's got, there's got to be a few different reasons, you know, one surfers are so focused on that one pursuit getting barreled or, or, or yeah or whatever their skill level provides you right. know but it's it, the froth is high and you know that translating that to activism on some level which is maybe it's buying local food or maybe it's picking up beach trash on the beach whatever it may be but i love the idea of i'm so proud to be a surfer so i love the idea of surfers as a culture being more curious and more engaged in the world around them um you know we and especially in hawaii i mean hawaii has such a there's such a dichotomy there where the most debatably the most ecologically literate culture of all time is from hawaii but the current the current makeup of of the hawaiian uh, culture is dependent on and, and very unecological dependent on importation of, yeah. of everything 90% of their food or something around that I, number I think it's like yeah, and there's like three days of, of food supply for the island of disaster strikes which is you know a whole different tangent around really realizing disaster is yeah is, is in the in the future well that, it's um, it's disgustingly comical that a place that has three growing seasons imports over 90% of its food. And the, yeah, and then just again, the model. How did this happen? I don't how did know. this happen? You're, you're we, doing work we, to try and we, shift this model. How did this happen and how do we get back to uh, food systems that make sense? Yeah, I want to try to keep this fairly uh, loving and generous, but I do. I have been frustrated lately around the the reality that we find ourselves in. And that reality summarized on some level is that corporations um, and I'm not, you know, I think so corporations have asserted themselves as leadership in, in, in how the world is made up. Doesn't have to be a bad thing, but the current status quo of that is, is not abundant for agriculture. You know, and that what that means is that where our food comes from is from large agro business, large agro industrial complexes that provide the, the common denominator, which is commodities of genetically modified soy and canola and all these things, versus the idea of where agriculture was only 60 years ago, which is that we grew food. We all did something, right? We, our grandparents had fruit trees in their backyard, maybe a small raised bed with some vegetables, but clearly there are farmers in that community because it wasn't, it wasn't considered that you were gonna import food from around the world. Right. And so we have a there's there's a slight remembrance of what that looks like, and the future is bringing that back. Where do you see uh, Southern California in a hundred years? That's an amazing question. It all revolves around water. Um, you know, as, as you, we sit in Southern California, San Juan Capistrano, our annual average rainfall is about eight to 12 inches. And there's 10 to 12 million people in a 50 mile radius of here. It's crazy, totally unsustainable. Yeah. Our water sources come from two major places. It comes from Colorado River and it comes from the Delta up in the, up in the, the Sacramento Bay. 
San Francisco Bay. Those both are about three to 400 miles away. And we're sustaining a population here. We're pushing to bring insert agriculture back into the landscape of, of Southern California, but again, it's all water dependent. Um, we've, we've basically developed all, all real arable land here, the most fertile soil. There's a reason why agriculture is so abundant here. The reason why there's a place called Orange County is because the, the soil is incredibly fertile here and we have growing seasons like Hawaii where we can farm year round. Those have now been developed and so we're now having to figure out what does it look like in 100 years? It, it looks probably like one of two scenarios. One's not great, which is that there's probably a, a loss of some sort of population here. It doesn't, there isn't, it becomes very, um, we're, we've now completely stopped farming and it's a, this hyper-industrial um, fabricated reality or it's we've figured out how to manage all of our resources and our population and our landscapes so that there's a balance. Right. Where there is actually agriculture inserted in urban areas and all that kind of stuff. So what do you see as um, some of those first steps to creating a future that doesn't look like Mad Max? <laughs> well, that's the ecology center, right? That's what we model here every day. So we took an empty lot in an old farmhouse and we, we said the past informs the future and the future looks like this and it's real and we actually have to get outside and touch soil and meet our neighbors and those are kind of like the two those are a couple entry points into what the first steps are mm -hmm. is to just take an assessment that are, there are beautiful people everywhere um, we all have resources to share of different different types and that we all have the ability to have some level of self-sufficiency um, and or we all have the ability to build a local economy on some capacity. So again, these are baby steps, but it talks about building um, literacy, awareness that we are humans on a planet with finite resources, but that becomes a great design challenge. Yes, and as we were talking about before we sat down, um, intention starts with design, Yeah. which I'm a big believer in. I've been doing um, short documentaries about all different kinds of issues over the past eight years, whether mm -hmm. it be the banking system or food or water or or really anything, and I, I, I found that the most common um, theme between all of them is resilient local economies. Yeah. Because if you have food that's grown right down the street, if um, Long Beach Port gets blown up, you still have food. You know, if you have your money in a bank that's in your community, and then we have a crash like we did in 2008, you are you are less impacted than if your money is being swirled around in some multinational bank. Um, but right now we live in, in this world where it is, it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's becoming more centralized, but also becoming more diverse at the same time. Yeah. But what do, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think you're right. I mean, we, decentralization is a good thing in that it brings joy back to our lives. I mean, we're talking about these heady ideas that might not be understandable for everyone uh, and that's okay global systems global food systems global economic system the most important thing is when you go down the street from your house and you spend money at a mom and pop you're doing 10 times more good than if you went to a chain yeah walmart for example if you go buy money go buy your food delicious seasonal organic food from a farmer's market at a farm farmer at a farm farm 
far, <laughs> farmer's market, local farmer, 10 times better than going to a supermarket and buying food from who knows where by who knows who. Yeah. Um, again, the, bringing it back to joy, I think, is part of it, which is that it's delicious. It's, it's, it's nutritious. It's, um, and, it, and, it's, and it does many, many things of, of good around it. Right. Um, I, I find that there's also more, uh, when there is more community participation, there's more accountability and there's more support for one another. Right. I, I actually was just re, uh, listening on, on my way back up from, um, from this last trip I took down to Mexico, mm-hmm. a podcast uh, with, it was a Mark Maron podcast, mm-hmm. and he had this guy named Sam Quinones on, and he was, he just, is total tangent, but he just wrote a book on um, America's opiate ep- epidemic. Right now we're in the largest opiate epidemic um, in our Hard country's part. history, and almost 100% of black tar heroin users started on Oxycontin, wow. and he talks about how he thinks that this epidemic would not have happened to the degree that it has if these prescription drugs were being um, taken and, and, and bought from local mom and pop stores because there's the accountability of the addict coming back and being like, I need another Oxycontin, I need another Oxycontin. And there would have been more safeguards to stop that. But a lot of these communities, um, I mean, Appalachia is the canary in the coal mine, where just crazy numbers of people are addicted to Oxycontin. And there's not a lot of local business in a lot of these towns. It's just one Walmart where everyone goes in and they get their Oxycontin prescription. Totally. And there's no accountability community-wide, right? right. Like the, it's, it's this idea, and I think that what you're doing here is so important because it's, it's simply getting people outside and they're talking to each other. For sure. And a lot of, I, I think, the, the darkest parts of um, society today is when we disconnect, when we stay in our rooms and we're not talking to people, we're not interacting. And food ultimately is one of, I think, the the best places for people to interact. Totally. I mean, that's, I've actually been thinking a lot about that, you know, with this election happening, middle America feeling disenfranchised. The reality is that we've unconsciously designed our rea- the, the, everything around us. So what does that look like? You just said Walmart in Appalachia. Well, Walmart is in every small town in America, and it's killed every mom and pop in America, more or less. I mean, my, my grandparents used to live in the Central Valley. My mom grew up there, thriving town. My grandfather had an auto parts store next to 50 other great mom and pops on Main Street. Kmart moved in in the early 90s, and every one of them wiped, was wiped out within five years. And that's happened everywhere. We as humans, we allow that to happen because we are not thinking about the we. We're thinking about the I. I want something cheap. I want tomatoes in December. I want a t-shirt for $1.50. I want whatever it is that I want. We forgot that we're actually part of a fabric and a landscape that is dependent on one another, dependent on the planet and the resources and dependent on our neighbors. And the good thing is, is that maybe there's hope that we can rebuild what community looks like. We can say that cheap is, is nice, but it's not great. It's not actually the end game for, what, for getting us to solve problems. For example, when you buy something that has value, you respect it. It lives for multiple generations. My brother's a furniture maker. 
So instead of me going to Ikea, which I have done in the past, that furniture breaks down in a couple of years. We all know it. It's not, you can't go through a move with, with Ikea furniture. Not to mention, it's the most frustrating thing to try and set up <laughs> yeah. in the world. You will gladly pay the extra $100 to not have to figure out what screw goes where. Yeah, it's, you know, and that, that, uh, that's, that's another conversation which I think is interesting. But the idea that there are furniture makers in our community, like my brother, you, could, you might spend two times more. You might spend three, four times more. That's an heirloom piece. That'll last you for generations. I will pass down the table that my, my dining table that my brother built to me, to my child. And we, feel, we will feel grateful about that. It becomes an heirloom. And it's a little bit different. It's, it's moving beyond a disposable economy. Local agriculture obviously is, is, is a 100% uh, connected to, to this paradigm. Um, the shift of, of actually being conscious of where our dollars go. And so does basically everything around us is too. You know, the local textile artists, furniture makers, food artisans, you name it. So what do you say um, to people who will respond with like, yeah, that's great, but look, I'm barely making rent. And the organic food movement is elitist because I can't afford um, $5 tomatoes. I think my friend Ron Finley in, in South Central has a pretty good indicator of what's real and what's not. You know, he started farming because he couldn't afford f to buy food at the liquor store next to his house right so he started farming in his median and it was able to grow food so okay so if you don't have time to grow your own food even a small bit of it and you have to you have to you're not again we're not saying that organic food is only accessible at whole foods at a premium um Real food, organic or not, comes from a farmer's market. It comes from people in your neighborhood. And that food shouldn't be, a, it shouldn't have a cost premium on it. Right. The other part of the conversation is it's about priorities. I've heard people say that to me, and at the same time, they've got a TV that's six feet wide. I've heard people say that to me. There's planes. You know, you, know, you, you never. <laughs> Can you pass the mate? Yeah, yeah. You, ne you never worry about audio. And you never really complain about planes until you start doing a podcast and you realize <laughs> that they're everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Okay, keep going. You know, so I think... No, but I want to I hear this because I think that the conversation for a lot of people stops at like, yeah, I get it. Local food is better. It creates more resilient economies. But I'm worrying about today. I'm worrying about rent. I'm worrying about... And I'm sure that that's a reality that I don't have familiarity with right yeah. now, one I'm a farmer I grow my own food but two I prioritize food we don't have a TV but we eat really well um, we don't have nice cars but I have a bicycle right I mean it all comes down to how what are the things that are most important to us why I think an argument for food in a priority of, of consumption is important is because that's what sustains us it would keep us healthy right it's what nourishes up and it will ultimately what gives back to our community so I get that there are very there are challenges with understanding how do we put local food into everyone's hands. It's the idea of I can't afford it is a roadblock. That's not creative problem solving. That's saying I don't want local food. I would rather have crappy food for cheap. And and what I'm saying is that yeah, food can be expensive. But everything worth caring for is expensive and if there are ways to make it less expensive so you know that's a whole nother thing which is let's talk to people that are actually doing the real work of farming and making it less less expensive than 
commodities yeah. that you would buy at a Stater Brothers or some mediocre grocery store. Yeah. So, so how'd you get into this? What was your story from growing up? You say you grew up in Newport. I grew up in Newport. Grew up in Newport, <laughs> surfer. I I started Shredding 54th Street. Exactly. And now you have um, a really cool thing going on, and I want to know that story. How'd you get into it? Here's a tractor. Hopefully, that's not too much of a distraction. You know the the nut the the the, the nutshell is that I be, I I gained awareness of the health of our ocean or the negative health of our ocean after rain events in Orange County the beach would be closed I, I, I started volunteering with the Surf Island Foundation and started picking up trash and for the first time in my life as a teenager I said I, I realized maybe for the first time that we do have a negative impact on our environment and simultaneously had an awareness that if I didn't do anything about it then who is I just didn't see people stepping up to the plate neighbors schools you know community members saying let's do something about this let's make sure our ocean's healthy so i became engaged and where that engagement went was in a went to college also learned that agriculture is our number one source of pollution on the oceans globally a little bit different issues than trash but it's about runoff but i started thinking about what sustains us is what's killing us not just from a health perspective but from an ecological um, global perspective and I got really excited about the idea of taking my livelihood, my you know, and putting it to work outdoors by putting my hand in the soil, by actually being a, a problem solver real time, and what, saying, "What yeah. did that look like? What was the first time that you uh, when that I got, you got to, out in the farm?" So I went to UC Santa Cruz and was just enamored by the farm project there. It's uh, the model farm for you know for this te- this climate the temperate region of the united states for sure uh started in the mid 60s and i was just so amazed and I, it's hard to uh, put those feelings into words of it was all starting to connect for me as a, as a human on this planet like whoa right it's it's actually we can take we're we're empowered now i grew up listening to punk music like i have that in me where you know, and a friend of mine said this to me, punk's not a, a music, it's a state of mind, right? That we stand up for what we believe in and agriculture is punk, right? This podcast is punk because we're not just going to go along with the status quo and say, yeah, that's all good, you know? Yeah. I'm just going to go get a couple waves and then go into my day job and do something, you know? No offense, but let's, our life is so short and I believe and join me or not, but that we all can stand for something bigger than ourselves. Right. And so agriculture was that representation for me. We started gardening in our backyard as students. I started volunteering at the farm. I started working for farms and making money and was blown away. Also realized the challenges of it, right? It's super hard work. It's so hard to make a tomato. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. It was so much <laughs> And it's labor just, intensive. It was so know? much easier just picking it up in the plastic bag within the plastic box at Walmart. Damn it. <laughs> I loved, you know, harvesting. I was one of my first job in Santa Cruz was harvesting dry farm tomatoes up above um, Wild Elk Creek, you know, for a summer. Just coming home with just green arms. And I, I just, it was just, it felt real, you know. And that, that turned obviously more into an educational setting. But I continued farming for 10 years. And I farmed in Latin America because I was a, growing up as a surfer, always enamored by the tropics. Uh, also read some interesting um books by people like wade davis or um you know even terence mckenna or um really amazing people mark plotkin ethnobotanist that is the, the 
how the tropics they brought the tropics to life for me through yeah. what culture and it, it, culture's relationships to plants mm. and so agriculture is directly in line with that ethnobotany idea which is that people are dependent on plants we always have been we always will be everything we need we can grow um, and in the tropics you can put that work to to the test really quickly because life happens really rapidly there yeah it's all it's like everything is on steroids there when you try and grow something you see it happen more quickly and i think that seeing that success quickly especially if you're getting into something like farming yeah. is really important for people absolutely and this and agriculture looks way different in the tropics which was also a very inspiring um lesson for me as an ecological designer we model our you know our solutions after nature that's around us so think about nature in the tropics as a big rainforest so it doesn't look like row crops like we see in southern california or in santa cruz different series of crops different series of patterns and so but succession happens quick ecosystems are built quickly so um you know, we were basically rebuilding food forests. So, where, so where were you going? Yeah. Well, that was well, like, you know, paint, some, paint this picture for me when you went down there. So, some of that early work was was bridging surf and agriculture, um, and was in Costa Rica, and you started off leading um, some permaculture design courses in Costa Rica at my friend's farm called Punta Mona on the Caribbean side, and that led into design and a leadership job, running a thousand acre farm project on the osa peninsula and so it was an open canvas right you know i'm the type of person that doesn't say no it just says yes you know and says of course we can let's make this amazing and so it was figuring out how do we transform a thousand acres of degraded pasture into uh you know a vibrant ecosystem through food so it was a serious design challenge and and an ecological challenge so what you know sidebar here is that what happens in the tropics pretty much anywhere we're in that climate humans don't know how to work with forests modern day humans indigenous people live in a forest modern day people cut forests and they put cattle and cattle don't go in the tropics and then because the tropics wants to evolve back into a forest that pasture turns into a forest really quickly within a few years and no longer food for cattle and then so they either cut and burn again or they just cut another piece of forest and move on. That's a big thing that's happening down in the Amazon right now. Huge. I mean, that's arguably the worst environmental impact happening on planet Earth right now is the cattle and meat industry in the Amazon in Brazil. Also, arguably the most dangerous place to be an activist in the world right now is being well, part of the well that's there's pirate you know the, the pirating of, of how the power works down there you'll just kill you if they don't like what you're saying you know? oh yeah <laughs> so, well there's a story about the the than, nun who is an activist down there and the people from the industry or shadow people from that industry that just offed her i mean it's it's for real down there it's not like posting an instagram photo up here and calling it activism no it's different and it's it's hardcore it's hardcore so so the work in costa rica wasn't hardcore like that but it was meaningful in that we did restore a thousand acres into a regenerative ag project we you know first thing we did was first things first we're two hours from from a town with a small general store and a in a hardware store or liquor store so we were off the grid i mean you know there was there was when I came to the farm, there were 15 families living there. 
thousand acres. It takes a lot of work, and it was, you know, as a big operation. So, what was a day for you down there? Walk me through a day in your life. Well, first things first was we had to get food happening. So we had to actually grow right two hours from a supply store. So that was the first thing we did is that we we put the tractors to work and and grew three acres of food. And within three months, we fed everyone in that community. Um, you got tractors down there? There were tractors, there on, were tractors on the farm. There were tractors down there. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's a thousand acre operation. There were cattle on the, basically it was a cattle operation that we transformed into a, uh, you know, a permaculture, um, agroforestry operation. So, um, we grew food for everyone in th- the first three months. And then we, we employed the, those that weren't working on the farm, mostly the women, and it became a value add op- enterprise. And, um, we fed everyone on the farm lunch. So it was really cool. Like really, again, simple, small solutions. Like what do we do first? Do we, do we tackle a thousand acres? No, let's farm three acres. Let's grow food, design it consciously, and then plan for the rainy season and then grow, you know? And then when did you go to Africa? So yeah. you were down in You asked Post- me what I did in day, my day to day. Yeah. Sorry. Keep it going. Keep yeah. it going. My day yeah. I, yeah. I don't, I, Costa Rica was insane because yeah. I lived on a thatch hut on the beach on a thousand acre property beachfront. So we had 10 miles of beach and it was me and, and my mate. So I ran agriculture and the whole farm and my other friend was in natural building. So we built all the structures out of bamboo. So did you know how to build that before you went down? No, there? I didn't do that. I did all the agriculture. Oh, okay. I managed and ran the farm, designed it and, and led the team. But we had a couple people as including Will uh, on, on the construction side. And so it was all of our animal structures, all of our uh, greenhouses, everything was built out of, out of bamboo. Has your des- so, would you say that your design proclivity has always been geared towards agriculture over building or did you oh, learn yeah. all of that as well? Yeah, I'm not an architect. Yeah. Um, but you have an, you have obviously have a great appreciation for I design. That. I mean, there's a geodesic dome standing <laughs> right behind you. I'm sure Buckminster Fuller would I'd be give, very proud of you right now. I, I hope so. I, I have a lot of respect for Bucky. Um, you know, I have a my my mom's an artist. My brother's a designer. My friends are designers and artists. My wife's an artist. I feel like there's that that's there, you know that's well represented in my life, and so we keep a close eye on that. But um, you know, I think where my sweet spot is integrating the ecological relationships into my, you know the built environment through design. So um, that's what the Ecology Center represents. But back to Costa Rica because I, I I always I, I like want to live that moment real quick in my head which was that we lived on this right beachfront so we literally would wake up 5 30 in the morning it's light pack a gourd drink some mate and we walk out to the beach and check the surf if the surf was good we'd surf if it wasn't we'd understand when the tide was right but we'd we had motorcycles we'd ride over to the middle of the farm we'd get the team going about 15 workers on different projects large-scale agriculture rice planting bamboo construction big operation happening and then we would, you know, it was throughout the day, you know, keeping an eye on surf, surfing, farming. And it was like this beautiful balance. And if the waves were too big out front because it was a beach break and super exposed, we'd race down to Monte Apollo and surf the points. And it was just, it was awesome. Oh, man, that sounds like <laughs> such a good time. And I'm sure you're... Um just trial by fire learning on the job all right i don't know how to do this better figure it out yeah I probably think so much learning down there a lot of learning a lot of learning you know i think um most importantly i know how to garden and know how to farm yeah and so getting uh, creating a yield instantly was 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 within reach so we farmed three acres and then that next rainy season we planted ten thousand trees right so i i understood the pattern of what we wanted to do so um, 
because I had, I, you know, not, not really that I went to school for it, but I did go to school for it, but I had enough experience and enough, I, I'm, I, I consider myself mostly self-taught in that, you know, what's very interested in the, what literature out there is really talking about these big ideas in a practical sense. And so I was reading and... So who would you recommend, uh, the, what book would you recommend to people um, who are not farmers and are interested in getting into this? Because for, for me, I mean, I'm interested in getting better at growing my own food, mm-hmm. but it can feel really audacious to take that first step. Yeah. What do you think? I'm, I'm kind of going to give you a little multi-part yeah. okay. question. <laughs> is what are the biggest mistakes that most people make when they're trying to grow their own food? Mm. And what is some literature out there that isn't going to overwhelm people? So super, you know, everyone, if you're super entry, I would say EcoCent, our, the Ecology Center information is, is designed to meet you for the first time gardener. So we've got different books and publications that we've put together, you know, Container Garden Basics, for example. So that's a great starting place. It's a 60-page book that you can buy on our website. Um, you know, there's another DIY book that we put together called Backyard Skills, which is really like, okay, if it's not just gardening, but you want to be a little bit more holistic in your relationship to living on this planet, then that's a good one because it's a good starter kit. Learning how to harvest rainwater with a rain barrel, learning how to compost with a worm bin, making simple things like pickles or preserves so that's a little bit more well-rounded if you're a little want to get a little bit deeper past you know just gardening and containers and you're ready to take on a large backyard garden operation well my the book that inspired me from a technical perspective was john jevin's book how to grow more vegetables and that's a book that is sort of like a manual for organic gardening in small spaces so that's a really great technical manual and then, you know, Toby Hemingway's done a good job with Gaia's Garden, which becomes a little bit more of balancing the philosophy of this stuff with the practical um, in more of a home setting, home garden setting. And, um, you know, going beyond that, there's books that are, you know, that, you know, in the depths of agriculture that, that get more and more complex. But I think those are let's, kind of like let's the, leave yeah, it at yeah. the starting point. And what are the biggest mistakes that people make when they're trying to grow their own food? I think the biggest mistake that I hear the most often is that people, um, there's probably a disconnect in a, this, there's a disappropriated effort towards the pest as being a problem. Okay. So what I always hear for first time gardeners is that there's something eating my something, or I've got this something on my something. And it becomes very defensive. It's like, there's, you know, it's like, so that's a that's that's the first challenge which is that hey this is nature everything eats everything all the time everything's eating something and so one that's an indicator of soil health so the first level of success is put as much attention as you can to your soil and what that means that's a very complex conversation because it can go again super deep but just buy the best quality soil you can if you're building a raised bed add the best quality organic matter um, through compost that you possibly can afford so it's not the cheapest is never going to be good. That's that's basically gardening and mulch. And what happens when you do that is that you have pest pressures. So pests are a relationship to soil health. And so pests are inevitable. And it's not about fighting them. It's not about spraying organic something on them to get rid of them. It's saying, okay, cool, we got pests. How are we going to do better next time? So don't be afraid to fail. Like it's okay if you have pests, just pull those plants out if it's if past the point of no return, compost them, amend the soil better, 
plant something else. Sometimes it's a relationship of planting the wrong thing at the wrong time. So how does that work? You, you said that pests are an indicator of soil health. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Yeah, so that's... <laughs> that's because for yeah. um, the, the average idiot like me walking down the street, it is... Uh, it, it seems that it's more like, oh, there's an aphid and it's on my strawberry. Yeah. And so it's there's just a couple, that aphids like strawberries. How, what's the relationship to soil health? Two things. If there's aphids on your strawberries, it's probably one of two things. It's a, There's climate out of balance, meaning it's the wrong time of year. The temperature is too hot or so, the soil is not fertile enough. When the soil isn't, you don't have fer, t- fertile soil, then your plant doesn't have resilience. So again, the stronger, more fertile your soil is the stronger your plants are so when pests do come which is inevitable they can withstand the pest that's the general idea if you have really junky mediocre soil those plants aren't going to have strength again we're farming the health of our food and the quality of the food does come back to the soil and that's where you want to segue into another conversation where is organic the, the be end all of course not it's just an indicator for toxic toxicity or not but it doesn't have anything to do with the health and nutrition of the ecosystem or the of the food being harvested so that again that's that's a whole other category but but healthy soil healthy because soil. that's going to be the foundation of the house and then when there's an earthquake it's less likely that your house is going to fall down same thing or it's yeah. like having vitamin c and a healthy immune system then when you're around people who are sick you're less likely to get the flu exact same thing soil is your immunity okay right so yeah when you you might see people around you that are getting sick you do things right so you, you plants, they might get the, the climate's off. It's getting too hot, too cold. You see things around getting pests. You pull them, right? You push them away. You get away from your friends that are sick, and then you you double dose on immunity booster. So you might add, uh, you know, a fish emulsion or add a compost tea or you know think you know things like that. So it's, you know, it's the same analogies in that you just mentioned. I think very well. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. So and other, one thing that's uh, was fascinating to me was learning. Uh, about introducing bugs to eat pests. Mm. Not trying to get rid of all the bugs, but right. if you have aphids, throw some ladybugs on there, and they're right. going to so munch it, those so things. We, this is nature we're talking about. This isn't a laboratory, right? So in nature, there will always be pests. There will always be predators. So from a garden perspective, if you have pests like an aphid, there are predators. There are natural predators that eat aphids. Everything eats something. And so therefore, in, the, in a design conversation, not just at going to the store and buying ladybugs when you see aphids is you're building soil health, but you're also building habitat. So if you have places in your garden with perennial plants, could be native, uh, native plants like sages that bring in all sorts of habitat and beneficial insects. Um, it could be fruit trees. It could be a mix of different types of herbs. But when you have perennial plants that aren't, you're not constantly taking out, that's where the predators live. That were just sitting there waiting on the sidelines for when there's a pest because then there's an opportunity. So it's checks and balances. What, uh, what plants would you recommend people uh, start with? If you're not gardening, start with herbs. And most importantly, perennial savory herbs. And don't overwater them. <laughs> so rosemary, oregano, thyme, those are the types of things that can be grown in a, in a simple terracotta pot on a, in a window in your kitchen or on a patio. So uh, mint is also another super simple thing to grow. 
you can't overwater mint. So again, just understanding what the criteria are, but grow mint in a pot in your kitchen or out your back door. Start small, right? So if you go beyond the herbs, um, then grow some lettuces or grow Swiss chard or grow kale. Like again, start with things that you can harvest on a regular basis because that's what gardens demand. It's not plant my tomatoes and go out in three months and see if I have tomatoes. That's not how gardening works. Gardening is about building a relationship. I tried that once. Yeah. It didn't work. Yeah, no. <laughs> Where are my tomatoes? It doesn't just. Who <laughs> stole my tomatoes? <laughs> Aphids! It doesn't just magically appear. So, and then from a design perspective, you plant your garden as close as you possibly can to your yeah. kitchen. Because every, hopefully every day you're going to harvest something from your garden. So, again, relative location. Keep it simple. So I want to now uh, zoom back into the 10,000-foot view of, okay. of food today. Because, obviously, um, local gardens are going to play a major role mm -hmm. in uh, resiliency of mm -hmm. society moving forward. Yeah. We also are living in a situation where the Walmarts of the world have, and, and, and companies really, um, are gaining more and more power. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, Walmart now is the largest buyer of organic food mm. um, globally. And how can big corporations also fit into the future of um, a resilient food economy? Because I think that there's I mean, one thing that I've been kind of turned off by in um, just in conversations that I've had with people who are in the permaculture movement is that it's it's like a belief that the corporations will go away. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you have that belief. No. And, it, and it's, I think that with it seems like what you're doing here is you're working with an integrated yeah. system. You're working with companies to help. Well, that's the transformation I've seen in the last 20 years from uh, environmental activism. Mm hmm. When we were in college, we were protesting corporations, and, and there's a place for that. Now environmentalism is about building relationships with everyone, including corporations. Corporations have an amazing ability to do good. I mean, we work with some amazing brands, and, you know, look at Chipotle. You know, they're sourcing with integrity at 2,500, 3,000 restaurants strong. It's not easy. It's not perfect. But they're doing it better than most chefs that have their own restaurant here locally. And that's impressive, right? Brands like Nike that are actually looking at materials life cycle so that there's, there's no such thing as waste, you know, in the next 15 years in their product. Big ideas, we have to tackle them at all scales, right? We need, it's, it's <laughs> I was about to say, we need these big businesses. I don't know if we need big businesses, but we have them and let's use them as a force for good. We need local farmers as a force for good. And it's not one size fits all. There's no one solution. Every, there's always a different solution for everyone in every different place. And so there is going to be the fact that Walmart sells the most amount of organic food. That's awesome, right? Because that puts mainstream growers that weren't growing organic now into less toxic agricultures. And then it provides food to that market. That's awesome. That's a gateway into them saying the next best step is going to my Farms, farmers market in Omaha, Nebraska, because I want to build a relationship with my community. It's all a, it's all a segue of, uh, uh, you know, of these ideas. And the deepest dive is obviously growing food yourself and having deep, real relationships with the farmers in your community that grow food for you. Right. So we're going to get there. Um, is it instantaneous? No. Is it is it easy? No. Of course not. But it's it, it is delicious. And so I think that. One of the things that I've talked about in the past is if you give people the opportunity to make a good decision, 
I think they would always do it. You know, do you say, do you want to eat delicious food that, that, that supports a local farmer and that has a positive impact on the world around you compared to maybe some food that comes from a place that you don't know where it is by grown by someone that you don't know under conditions that are not good for those communities transported by systems that aren't ultimately great for our climate right so not villainizing anything just saying that one decision is clearly better for a lot more people in your your community vicinity that you care about than than other decisions like tomatoes from chile versus tomatoes in season from down the street so i think it's 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 awareness um, and then an action and you know our work at the ecology center is both of those is building awareness to these ideas in an accessible way that feels relatable to the most amount of people we're not we're trying to make this as accessible as we can so that someone of, of all walks of life says you know what this is beautiful and the experience that I had here was was heartwarming. It was meaningful. It was educational. And I'm going to do something about that. I learned something there that, you know, one simple solution. And I'm going to I'm going to start there. And that we, I hear that thousands of times a year. You know, and that makes me feel so proud because our work, our design challenge with creating the center wasn't to be the the headiest operation ever. It was just to be a platform for people in any walks of life, specifically, you know, those that aren't exactly like us to say this is an on-ramp for me into into this idea that you think is so important. I think you're giving me more credit than I deserve because <laughs> I still probably couldn't grow some strawberries. But we're going to check in in 12 months, and then I'm going to be but, but that's a the, samurai You don't need grower. to grow strawberries, right? You're doing amazing work by telling stories and by you know supporting people in different communities around the world through that storytelling. There are farmers, you know, there are furniture makers, there are storytellers, there are artists, there are business people. You know, it's all positive and it takes a diverse fabric. Yeah, there is something, though, to be to being a human and being able to grow your own food. I, I, I find that there are, at least with my generation, um, we are overly developed in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And we are incredibly inept in, yeah. in other ways. The fact that I still need to call my dad and be like... Uh, how do I make a planter box again? I'm like, damn, I'm 26 years old. I should know how to do this. I guarantee right. you my dad and his dad knew how to make a planter box when they were my age. I agree with that. I'm a, that was kind of the, the thing that I took away from this election was that we all have to stand up for what we believe in, whatever you believe in. And we have to stand up for something. I do see a lot of young people apathetic. I don't see them standing up for something. They're all really good at, at social media. That doesn't mean anything. They all know how to do marketing. That doesn't actually, but what are they marketing for? Right. We don't need you to market for yourself. That's not going to, that's not going to actually empower anyone else other than your little head. Right? right. So how do we take those, those, the power of young people, the skills that they have and actually put them into good. I mean, that's, that's, I think if we can figure that out, then we can actually get quite a few steps further into creating the future that we imagine well the uh, conversation that we were having before we sat down here was how you were, you were talking about how you worked with designers to help market this which is yeah. uh, has incredible substance there yeah. are incredible stories um that are coming out of this place and i i really appreciate that um, mm-hmm. because I think that there is a disconnect right. a, a lot of times between people who are really good at selling vapid nothingness yeah. 
and people that are doing really substantial work but don't know how to talk about it. And right. when I when I walk through the path here, I see just over there a very simple uh, design of a shovel yeah. that looks and it said right below it says grow your own right. and it's very approachable right there's you're not using a lot of acronyms or right. jargony words that a lot of times turn right. people off well i think that is some the the you know the work that we do employs people from all different backgrounds and that's what we have to do i mean there's marketers are great at marketing environmentalists or educators are great at educating you know, whatever it is, and, and putting all those skill sets together is, is becomes, you know, important and profound. Um, but I love you're doing such with, good work. Yeah. How are you not salty? You're so you're so inspired by life. <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to be uh, salty and crotchety. Oh, what, no. what gives, man? No, the, I think we I say a lot, you know, the future is abundant and we, we you know, but we we no one's handing that to us. And so we have to fight for it. I have a one-year-old baby boy named Ocean, and it's so and so fun to be around him. And I just love showing him experiences. And I love this planet. I mean, I'm willing to do anything to protect it and, and, and to protect the human beings. It's not the planet that's actually going to be effed. It's, it's us and our relationship to each other. So um, I don't know. I, I, I have a lot of hopefulness because when I, you know, we put on a festival last weekend called Handmade, Gathering of Makers and Food Artisans. 1,500 people came from all walks of life and had a meaningful experience, like loved every minute of it and, you know, drop in the bucket. But those types of things keep me going, which is just, you know, constantly getting people together, um, sharing solutions, sharing our passions, um, and, and constantly thinking about what does it look like to do better. What did you learn from your experience working in Africa? I learned that, that for better or for worse, my community is, is Southern California. I grew up here and I, I, I didn't ever think I was gonna return. You know, going to school in Santa Cruz, it's pretty idyllic and surf's great, food scene's epicenter of the world in a way, you know, from an agriculture perspective. You're up in the redwoods, there's yeah. banana slugs. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, but of course it's not perfect. Nowhere's perfect, but... Um, no, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Other than the salty, you know, dudes that are claiming all sorts of stuff. And, What's that? Yeah. <laughs> okay, back to Africa. Yeah, what did you so, learn, so did you I learn learned about that, that? I learned that, you know, I think there, my, the calling for me was to come back and... and to, and to put my passion to work in, in this community that I was, I grew up around. And then that's started as Orange County. And now our vision is much larger than servicing Orange County. We're working into expanding into San Diego and ultimately across the country as an organization. And so that was the impetus for me. I learned that everywhere on this planet, there are challenges, real challenges, and they're all different and they all need demand different solutions. So in Africa, you know, it's hand to mouth like you eat what you grow and and you harvest what you grow that day like and it's a struggle and there's different solutions for for those types of places i was when my work in africa was promoting mostly the the uh, social enterprise through with bamboo so how do you turn bamboo that grows everywhere wild into an enterprise around making furniture um, but also simultaneously learning how do we diversify the farms very diverse farms i mean the, the polyculture is found in, in nigeria and ghana are insane and um 
What does that mean? Polyculture just means the diversity of, of food being grown. Instead of a monoculture, which is one thing at a time, polycultures, they're growing 30, 40 different types of crops all in, all in the same vicinity. Um, right. Not different rows of them, literally completely integrated. Right. So that was, you know, I learned is the thing is with these exchanges, we're living in Costa Rica, working in Peru or Nigeria. You, you know, let's be honest, like it's a cultural exchange. You know, change is, cultural change is, it's, takes many people forever you know and ultimately it comes from them and so I, I knew that in order to me to manifest change whatever that meant but what it meant for me was that it wasn't about being putting my anchor down in Nigeria and, and modeling sustainable agriculture that just that was going to be more self-serving than anything what it meant was coming back to Orange County and showing my neighbors and family and friends and now our community here of what what it means to live here in this place and um it's been a, it's been a fun journey sure has i Where didn't think this was gonna i didn't know if this was gonna work right ecological education in orange county and then debatably uh, way more important not way more important much equally as important as anywhere else in the world given our consumption patterning so what if we got it right here in a place like southern california there's a there's a profound opportunity for i I agree because i think that southern california is seen as uh and really is a highly subsidized culture from the water being Mm -hmm brought in from somewhere else yeah. the food being brought in from someone else somewhere else and subsidized with the amount of uh wealth that there is down here mm-hmm. but a lot of the wealth is created from people who aren't making anything right it's like what you were talking about it's people who are really good marketers right. people who are good at making movies right. um, i mean you're making something but it's not tangible it's not right. something that you can feel right. and eat and pick up mm-hmm. which um Going back to what you said earlier about it feeling real, yeah. I think is something that is it's it's attractive to me, man. Yeah. Th- just doing something that is real and tangible um, is something that's so simple, but also so futuristic. Yeah. And so historical. I know. I love that where the the past does meet the future, because the, the future the future isn't abundant if it's about robots and technology and and us living in our own little bubbles like that's not interesting we're, again we're humans we've lived on this planet for a very short period of time but there are really great things that we can point to as examples of living on this planet right and they look different we're not going back into 1955 to recreate what that looks like it's totally different but it's there is some remnants of the idea that local for local is a great thing because it's just it's imperative for us to to to, you know go beyond just very wealthy people and very poor people and we so we have to take you know power into our hands and actually start building things so um where can people find you do you uh is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't covered yet i'm sure there's lots and you know hopefully we can do a round two sometime yeah i love that kyle it's great to connect um people can find us so we're in san juan capistrano Again, we have a little, you know, incubation space here. So we're just modeling a positive humanity here in, in, in a beautiful little organic farm and an old farmhouse. But our work is throughout the community. Our next big project, we're actually building out a mobile eco center on a double-decker bus so we can come to you. So um, 
let us know and then our we're launching a new website um next week i don't know when this is airing so yeah it'll be up okay great so that'll check What's that the out website the ecology center.org the ecology center.org so. and can people find you specifically anywhere they say hey there's aphids eating my strawberries <laughs> what gives good question <laughs> come knock on my door come knock on your door yeah come to the ecology center or send me an email yeah but i don't know where they'd find me specifically you're, you're here at the ecology center i'm here at the ecology center right on man well thanks right. for your time yeah kyle honored yeah, yeah. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Evan. Be sure to go by the Ecology Center if you find yourself in Southern California. If you like this, go to my website, kyle.surf. You can sign up for the newsletter where I will get you all of the latest mini documentaries and podcasts that I'm releasing delivered to your front door. I mean, inbox. All right. Hope you all have a fantastic gay. gay hope you're all having a, a gay and fantastic day. All right. <laughs> Goodbye.